Ahead of Their Time is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Producer Joe, what's on your mind this week? Well, Neil, I feel like in our sessions together, we've only really scratched the surface of all the great courses on The Great Courses Plus. You're right, Joe. There's so much more that you can explore. You'll have unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you. American history, world history, politics, investments, photography, and more. All from award-winning professors. I'm going to sign up right now. Okay, Joe. We even have a special offer for you and our listeners. A full month of free video courses when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. In the summer of 1970, two young tennis players met up in the first round of the Eastern Grass Court Championships in New Jersey. The younger girl was an up-and-coming junior player with straight blonde hair and bangs. Hey, Chrissy, how are you? Hi, good, thank you. Her name is Chris Evers. I was a professional tennis player in the 70s and 80s, and now I'm working for ESPN and doing the commentating. Chris is a legend. But on that day in 1970, she was just 15, and she was playing one of her first professional tournaments. Her opponent was 21 years old. A girl by the name of Peaches Barkowitz. Peaches had 17 junior titles under her belt, and the previous year she'd reached number eight in the world. This was their first meeting, but the two young women had something in common. They both played with a two-handed backhand. It was a shot that almost nobody else used at the time. All the past champions, from Arthur Ashe to Stan Smith to Billie Jean King, they all previously had one-handed backhand. But both of these girls, totally independent from each other, added the second hand to their backhand. Despite whatever similarities they had on the court, Peaches and Chris would go down very different paths after they faced off that day. One would become a footnote in tennis history. The other would define the game for a generation and inspire a series of innovations that would change women's tennis in unexpected ways. This is Ahead of Their Time, and I'm Neil Payne. We'll get back to the match between Peaches and Chrissy soon, but first we need to find out where they came from. And here to tell that story is producer Emma Morgenstern. More than a decade before that match between Peaches Bartkowitz and Chris Evert, a couple by the name of Jean and Jerry Hoxie started a tennis camp. It was in Hamtramck, Michigan, a small village within Detroit. One of the kids in the Hoxie's tennis camp was Julie Heldman, who went on to a successful pro tennis career. My sister and I went to Hamtramck every summer for seven summers for approximately eight to ten weeks per summer. The tennis camp in Hamtramck was not fancy. It was a group of six or eight cement courts at the Hamtramck Public Park. And it served the immigrant community of factory workers. A community of about 80% Polish and 10% Ukrainian and the rest a little here and there. The Hoxies thought with a little tennis training, the kids in the neighborhood might be able to get scholarships for college. So they would be the first of the, their families to get a, an education. During the summer of 1956, when Julie was in Hamtramck, another little girl wandered over to the courts. Hello, my name is Jane Peaches Barkowitz, and uh, people that know me or whatever still call me Peaches. In fact, a lot of people still think that's my real name. Peaches lived just down the street from the Hamtramck Memorial Park. 
I was romping through the bushes there, and I saw her tennis rackets, and I took it thinking, oh, my God. Peaches could not believe somebody had thrown out a racket. It was broken, but she didn't know the difference. She'd never seen a tennis racket before or played the game. So the next day, she walked back over to the park with her new toy, and she saw those tennis coaches, the Hoxies, giving lessons. Once I found the racket and that, um, practically lived there every day in the summer. When I first started playing, I was uh, very, very tiny. I was barely, you could barely see me over the net. She immediately became unbelievably good. And she was especially good at hitting the tennis ball against the wall. So this might not sound that important, but it was central to the Hoxie's method of teaching tennis. You had to learn to hit the ball back and forth against the wall without missing many, many times. By age eight, she decided to go for a record and hit 1,000 balls in a row against the wall, no missing. This eight-year-old scrawny child uh, with this insanely good hand-eye coordination was able to do it. And I was always banging against that wall. The kids just played a lot, and they just were driven to win. This is Don Gobby, who's writing a book about the history of the women's game. There was not a whole lot of instruction going on. The Hoxies didn't teach strokes. It was their idea on a forehand. The way to hit a forehand was open the door, shut the door. Open the door and shut the door. That's all they said. Usually teaching tennis, you focus in on the forehand and the backhand because they're the most basic strokes. They make up the whole game. And to get them right, you really do have to consider a lot of the mechanics. For example, how far you bring your arm back when you swing, the way you grip the racket, how the angle of the racket changes as you swing, the rotation of your body, how you arrange your feet. But the Hoxies just ignored all of that. Open the door, shut the door. Peaches was left to her own devices to figure out how to swing that racket. And on the backhand especially, it was hard to get the ball back over the net using only one hand on the grip. I couldn't really uh, hold it and release it. I had trouble, so I just started using a double-handed backhand. She was a small child playing with a heavy racket. And it seems pretty natural, maybe even obvious, that she would place her left hand above her right on the racket grip to get enough power. But it was actually revolutionary. Because at that time in women's tennis... The two-handed backhand was basically unheard of. In the early part of the history of the sport, you don't really find any references to players having any kind of success with it. This is Carl Bialik, who covers tennis for 538. No one realized that by adding an extra hand to the grip, you could... Get more power. You get the rotation from the left side of your body into the ball. And especially when you're younger, it's important to have that extra power to be able to kind of withstand the force of the ball and redirect it. Through playing, Peaches discovered these advantages on her own. Uh, I had a short backswing, and so I could flick it at the last minute, you know, down here and down there. And because of that short backswing, her opponents didn't know where the ball was going. Even though Peaches proved to be a tough competitor, people started saying, I think you should start doing the one hand. And she did sometimes try a one-hander, but... I'd always revert to something, that obviously, that I was winning with, so... I just stuck with the two-handed backhand, and that was it. Most other coaches would have pushed Peaches toward the conventional one-handed backhand. 
After all, it makes it easier to put spin on the ball and it gives you a better reach. But all the Hoxies knew was that Peaches could win with that two-handed backhand, so they let her go with it. You know, I thought it worked for me, you know, so I just stayed with it. At 11 years old, Peaches won the national tournaments for both the 11 and under and the 13 and under age groups. And she just kept winning and winning. Peaches to play against, you knew you were going to get balls coming at you hit very, very hard and very flat. By the time she turned pro, Peaches had won a record 17 junior titles. And that record still stands. She hadn't lost a match in her age group in years. She won the 11s, and she won the 13 and unders, and she won the 14s, and the 16s, and the 18s, and she won the 18 and unders, I believe, three times. Obviously, when you keep winning and winning and winning, and they just expect you to win. I can remember the last year in the juniors, it was like, God, if she wins this, she's never lost a match. And the, Yeah, you talk about pressure. Some of that pressure came from Peaches herself. But a lot of it came from her longtime coaches, the Hoxies. It was complicated. Mr. Hoxie was just the greatest, and uh, not only that, a smart man and very educated, very down-to-earth. You could really relate to him. But like a lot of tennis coaches, Mr. Hoxie could also be really tough on his players. He was way too pushy. He used to say to the kids who lived in Hamtramck, you don't win, you don't eat. And if they were to tournament, they didn't win. And he didn't think they tried hard enough, so once in a while he'd do it. He would say, okay, you don't get to eat. So the, the amount of pressure that was there was very high. And then there was Mrs. Hoxie. I'm only going to say her name once, Mrs. Hoxie. You know, she was never there to do anything, but just wanted the credit for everything. Mrs. Hoxie was never there because she was traveling the world teaching tennis. Her obituary names Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and the Crown Prince and Princess of Japan as her tennis students. But when she was home in Michigan, she'd sometimes bring the Hamtramck kids to their tournaments. That included Peaches. Did you start feeling pressure at some point when you were playing? All the time. Do you remember, like, when that really started? When I was eight, nine, because I was the one that was mostly winning. She struck fear into her kids that they, they had to win or, or else. When kids would go away to tournaments, they had to call Jean to tell her if they won or lost. And if, you know, the, when the kids lost, they'd be afraid to call her because uh, they were afraid of what, you know, what, what she would say. The Hoxie's hold on Peaches felt increasingly suffocating. And this is something we've seen time and again in sports, especially individual sports. Tennis has so many examples of coaching relationships that verge on abuse. In 1968, the tension between Peaches and Mrs. Hoxie was coming to a head. They traveled to Forest Hills, Queens, so Peaches could play in the U.S. Open. I think I was playing Anne Hayden Jones on the center court. Anne Hayden Jones was the number two woman in the world. It was the quarterfinals of the tournament. And Mrs. Hoxie wanted me to take some... Uh, uppers drug she gave it to me once before i didn't know what it was and made me so sick and i refused and told her it was the last match i'm playing and that was it and then at that point gene hoxie you know pleaded with her to stay with her and even offered her money but that was that was the end uh miss tough cookie who was a mean uh hitler uh just melted and you know I just said that was it. I had had enough, and 
that was the last match I was playing for her, and it was. Peaches was now free of the Hoxies. But it didn't make things instantly better, because even though they had put an incredible amount of pressure on her, she had also put a lot of pressure on herself. It wasn't fun to play tennis for Peaches. It was all about winning. It wasn't, let's go out and have fun and, and bat the ball around. There was not even the smallest bit of that. She was such a perfectionist, so she'd hit this steaming forehand down the line, be a great winner, and she'd go, hmm. And then the next shot she'd miss, she'd say, I'm going to quit this game. I can't stand this. I hate this. I'm going to quit this game. And the next point, she'd go out and hit another screaming winner. This kind of back and forth defined the next couple of years of her career. Peaches kept playing all over the world, but she also went long stretches without any matches and even enrolled in college courses. Despite that, she won, and she won enough to keep her ranking. In 1969, she became the number eight women's tennis player in the world. And what a good pressure player Peaches Barkovich is, having been brought in. But even a number eight ranking wasn't enough to keep her motivated. All of that pressure from her young tennis career was catching up to her. She didn't seem to enjoy playing. It was at this moment that Peaches Bartkowitz played her only match against Chris Evert. That's after the break. Hey, Joe. So what did you watch while our listeners were learning about the double-handed backhand? What didn't I watch? You know I'm a history guy, right? Mm-hmm. So I watched lectures on the Second World War, on ancient Greece, even on some of the inventions that changed the world. Those sound pretty cool. But I've been trying to teach you a bit more about science and technology, too. And there are courses here on the intelligent brain, robotics, even the fundamentals of photography. Huh. I've always wanted to learn photography. Well, now you can, Joe. And you can even watch the lecture on your phone on the subway and then finish the episode from your TV at home. That's my week sorted. Listeners, if you want to go out and learn photography just like Joe, all you have to do is sign up for the Great Courses Plus. We even have a special offer, an entire month of unlimited access to all of their lectures for free. So start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash time. And now back to the story of the two-handed backhand. When Chrissy Everett arrived at her match against Peaches Bartkowitz in 1970, she was only 15 years old. But she'd already been playing for 10 years. And just like Peaches, she'd figured out an easy way to make her game stronger. I was okay with the forehand, but the backhand, I grabbed it with my other hand, just spontaneously, just instinctively. And that's how I developed the two-hand backhand. Chris's dad was a tennis pro, and he'd taught her how to play tennis. But he did not teach her that backhand, and he hated it. When I got a little bit bigger and stronger, like at seven or eight, he even tried to change it. And it's still, I wasn't strong enough. Even when Chris did get bigger and stronger, she kept playing with the double-hander. It was a more consistent shot, and you could really change the direction of the ball, and you couldn't tell if you were going to go cross-court or down the line. And it's just a very solid shot, and you could have more power with two hands versus the one hand. People started realizing that the good outweighed the bad with that shot. When 1970 rolled around, 15-year-old Chrissy found herself in the court opposite 21-year-old Peaches. Chrissy was already familiar with Peaches playing because of course she also used the double-fisted backhand. She was definitely the first 
junior, as far as I can remember, that hit that shot. The two young women with two-handed backhands were finally going head-to-head. So I got killed by her. Lost six love, six love. <laughs> Peaches actually beat her 6-2, six, 6-1, six, but every lopsided loss can feel like six love, six love. She just had such powerful strokes. And, and I just remember thinking when I played against her, she just hit so hard and so flat with that backhand that it just blew me off the court. Even though Chrissy lost, everyone noticed her spark when she played. She seemed full of potential, on the brink of a big career. Peaches, on the other hand, was distracted and unhappy on the court. Peaches did continue playing after this match. She joined a new women's tour, but she made a poor showing. It was clear that she was ready to experience a world that did not revolve around tennis. So why did you decide to quit? Really, it got to the point where I wasn't loving it anymore. The pressure got to me. I was having migraines. I just needed to get away. The year after this match, Peaches retired. At the same time, Chris was thrashing every opponent who came her way. First set in the seventh, eight games to six. First she beat Margaret Court, then she beat Francoise Durr and tennis legend Billie Jean King. The Chrissy craze has begun. Chris became one of the biggest celebrities the sport had ever seen. People loved her, her sweet demeanor, her girlishness, but mostly they loved her fierceness on the court, her unwavering desire and ability to win. And if somebody around here is nervous, it's not Christine Marie Everett, the little ice woman from Fort Lauderdale. Fans had more access to the players they loved. More tennis matches were on TV than ever before, and so players became pop culture icons. Fans wanted to copy everything about them. All of this was what it took for the two-handed backhand to finally, finally catch on. Every kid in America wants to hit the backhand with two fists, boys and girls. You saw it on TV, and you can see in great detail what it looks like and how to do it. Carl Bialik, 538's tennis reporter. The shots that players hit would become something else that they could copy, like they might copy the headband that a player wears because it looks good. If a shot looks good and is successful and is winning points, of course you're going to want to try it out. On the men's side, too, you had a couple of big tennis stars, Jimmy Connors and Bjorn Borg. The fact that they both played with two-handed backhands made the shot even more popular. When Bjorn and I and Jimmy, and we all became number one in the world, I think it silenced people and and every kid in America started using it. We probably brought it to the masses. It was like an epidemic of two-handed backhands after a while. This new way of hitting the backhand changed how the game looked. You had less of an emphasis on coming to net, especially less serve and volleying, and less finesse, more power, and players put much more topspin on the ball. In other words, much less of an emphasis on what you might call a finesse game. Tennis shifted toward more powerful players. I do think as the game has moved away from finesse, partly because of technology, partly because of players just being stronger and more professionally trained that it's inevitable that there was this move to a two-handed backhand. More and more elite young players were hitting with the two-hander. Tracy Austin was one of them and Monica Sellis was another. She actually used two hands on the forehand too. If you fast forward to today, 
94 of the top 100 women play with the two-handed backhand. So the question is, does that second hand actually give you an advantage? Jeff Sackman is one of the top tennis analysts out there, and he's looked at this exact question of what advantage, if any, does a player have with a two-handed backhand compared to a one-handed backhand? And he looked at players on the men's tour and how they do against the return of serve. Players with the two-handed backhands do better. I took Jeff's same data set in women's tennis. Looks like the same story as the men's game. Now there's a catch here. There just aren't that many players that have a one-handed backhand. We have a very small sample size. But that in itself, I think, tells us just what a big advantage the two-handed backhand is today. The very fact that almost nobody is using the one-handed backhand suggests that the women who are still using it in professional tennis have extraordinary one-handed backhands, and yet they're still not as good at the return of serve as their competitors who have two-handed backhands. And that, I think, is the most compelling data point. I think the two-handed backhand is still the stronger, uh, more powerful shot for a woman. I don't think you're going to see many more one-handed backhands in a women's game. Watching tennis is kind of interesting now because it's like this different sport. Julie Heldman again. They run faster. They hit harder. It's just different now. I mean, they're so much better than we were as breathtaking. That is exceptional tennis. Best point of the match so far. The women's game today is personified by players like Serena Williams, Angelique Kerber, and Madison Keys. Women who are strong, fast, baseline hitters and who all add that second hand to their backhand. There we are. It's Serena Williams again. 14 years after that first victory here. Nobody knew it then, but when Chris Everett and Peaches Barkowitz faced off in 1970, they were foreshadowing what women's tennis matches would look like a generation later. They are two very different women who have gone down very different paths, but they have one thing in common. As little girls, they weren't afraid to shrug off the conventional wisdom about how to play the game. When you're a tennis player, you're playing an individual sport and you are responsible for your own fate and nobody can really tell you what to do. So you can try out a new shot, and you can see how it goes, and the court can become your laboratory for innovation. That means little girls like Chris and Peaches can transform the whole sport just because they decide they want to hit the ball a little harder. This episode was reported and produced by Emma Morgenstern with help from Joe Sykes. It was engineered by Tim Eininkel. Our editor was Jody Avergan. He had help from Julia Henderson, Andrew Mambo, Rose Eveleth, and Carl Bialik. Web design from Gus Wazarek. Production assistance came from Paul Williard. Tony Chow, Jorge Estrada, and Ryan Nantel ran things in the studio. And as always, thanks to Pete Giannisini in Bristol. For more about Peaches Barkowitz and Chris Everett, check out the companion piece Carl Bialik wrote on 538. And for more 538 podcasts, visit 538.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to our parent podcast, Hot Takedown, in the Listen tab of your ESPN app. We're going to take a break next week. Not sure if you heard, but there's a pretty big election going on. So use that time to check out our previous episodes, and if you like them, which I hope you do, Leave us a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help others discover the series. Okay, see everybody in two weeks.